as as you recall, we we were talking mainly about behaviorism when it came to uh, operant and classical conditioning, and and uh, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with it after sixty years. But basically, what happened is uh, the the end of behaviorism was uh, uh, B. F. Skinner wrote a paper about. Uh, how language is operantly conditioned. And a, a, a young man, he was working on his master's degree. It, the paper for review ended up on his desk and his name was Noam Chomsky. And he was a master's student at the time. Now, just to let everybody know, usually when you do a paper review academically, you might write a one page review and that's, that, that's about it. Just, you get it, you get it sent off and you say, okay, here, here's my opinion. Noam Chomsky, he, instead of just giving a basic review, he did a complete critique of Skinner's um, argument that language is uh, environmental, it's, it's all, uh, learned in the basics of it. I, I just want you to think about this. So uh, I mentioned during the developmental section that by the age of um, six, the average six-year-old knows anywhere between 50 to like 70,000 words. Okay. Now, if you think about operant conditioning and you think about, you have to start with the sounds and then you have to make the word completion and then you have to make the sentence you can see that combination go up and up. And I don't know about you guys. I don't remember my mom praising me 50 to 70,000 times between the age of one and six. And that was basically Noam Chomsky's argument. He's like, um, you, you can't just use these techniques, the, the, the operant conditioning and classical conditioning to explain the whole entire human condition. And he, and he wrote a paper that, you know, language is more an innate uh, development and, 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 and it's something that um, just can't be explained by saying the word the and mom saying, good job, kiddo, okay? Um, and so that, that really, that, that, that critique of Noam Chomsky, we started to see the decline of behaviorism in the United States. At the time, too, we just got through World War One and World War Two. Uh, we were getting involved in Vietnam. And uh, at the time, a big philosophical uh, 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 um, camp came into to in the United States. It really started to influence the United States. And it's called existentialism. Okay. And to summarize what existentialism is, is it is the belief that we're born into a nothingness, okay? That, that, that truly uh, we're born into a chaotic, non-sensual world. There's no meaning to it. There's no, um, there's no I mean, we're just born and, and, and we exist. And so to create meaning in our life, we create things like religion, we create things like government, we create things like education to provide meaning to a meaningless world, okay? That's the basis of existentialism, okay? 
But what grew out of it in the area of psychology is something we call humanistic theory. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, the basis of humanistic theory is that human beings are motivated to become the best version of who they are, to be, have a complete understanding of the self. But along the way, life interrupts that, um, that, that mission. So when we think of things like poverty and addiction and mental illness and everything, the humanists would argue that it's because there's not things in line that allows that individual to overcome their issues and to overcome that their, their things. And there's going to be two people who are really going to be the champions of the humanistic mo movement. And uh, the first one is going to be Abraham Maslow. And the second one is going to be Carl Rogers. Now, probably this is going to make sense to a, a lot of you uh, uh, when, when we get to it. Maslow, if you think of the pyramids of needs, that little triangle with all the needs on it, that's Maslow. Um, Rogers is going to say we all have the capacity within us. What we need is human relationships to allow us to fulfill our best needs, okay? So I want to bring up this movement because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about cognition, uh, memory, those kinds of things. And, and we've talked about behaviorism. We've talked, when, when we went through development, we talked about Freud psychoanalysis. This is what's called the third wave in psychology, this idea to bring back human motivation. Because if you think about Sigmund Freud's theory, if you think about behaviorism, everything in our life is determined, okay? For Freud, all of our actions are determined by our, 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 our unconscious drives towards sex and aggression, okay? For behaviorism, everything is determined by previously learned responses. So we're not truly making decisions. That For a behaviorist, when we think we're making decisions about our life, it's a byproduct of something you would already do based on your learned history, okay? The humanistic movement uh, says, no, wait a minute. No, no, humans are much more than that. Um, and it's going to be a precursor to what developed in 1999 called positive psychology, okay? In 1999, there was another kind of kind of like the behaviorist manifesto but it but but it was a it was a positive psychology manifesto that was published in um uh, um american psychologist which is the flagship journal for the apa uh because what the in 99 what what happened is is they said you know what psychology has focused on everything negative we focused on disorders we focused on what can go wrong but we haven't explained what goes right what 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 happy people do and so the positive psychology movement is going to grow out of this humanistic moment but there's a few precursors that we need to talk about okay
the humanistic uh, movement believes in free will. And this is where they get the philosophy for existentialism. If nothing is determined in life, if nothing is predetermined, according to existentialism, we're just born into a chaotic world, then a human truly has free will. And the humanistic approach is going to take this and say, we all have free will because that's what we're born into, okay? And it's going to stress a person's capacity for personal growth. It's going to say, yes, we have free will. As it says in the second bullet point, freedom to choose destination. But we all have this drive to be the best version of who we are. Okay. So it's going to focus on the positive human quality. And probably most important Humanistic approach feels that each individual already has a capacity to solve problems. It's our job to find those answers within. And so Carl Rogers was a clinical uh, person. He did counseling and he, he, he developed what's called client-centered therapy. And if you've ever watched a sitcom or something where a, 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 a person is going through counseling and the therapist is just sitting there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me more. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Tell me what you think. Tell me that blah, blah, blah. And they're just sitting there listening. Okay. That is the humanistic approach because in humanistic therapy, what your job is as the therapist is not to provide advice. It's not to provide answers. It's to create a relationship with someone that they feel safe, they feel secure, that finally they can find the solution that's already within that. So that, that's, that's going to be the, the basis of humanistic therapy. And I will tell you, anyone interested in going, going into counseling and therapy, we still use humanistic uh, theory, at least in the beginning of a relationship building with, with clients. We still use that approach because it's all focused on developing a relationship. Now, later on, we'll use something called, you know, e either cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that in order to assist the person. But I will tell you in modern therapy, Usually, uh, the, it starts with this humanistic approach about creating that connection with another human being, creating a safe environment for them to explore. All of those things come from this humanistic approach, okay? But the first person we should talk about is Abraham Maslow, and this triangle should look very familiar to a lot of you. Uh, if you've ever done any like HR training or anything like this, it probably looks very familiar. Um, I see memes on it on Facebook and Instagram all the time. But Abraham Maslow is going to uh, say, state that all of us are driven towards this thing called self-actualization. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually going to pause here and I'm going to say I prefer um, um, 
Carl Rogers' definition of self-actualization, but I'll just say Maslow's definition is that you, you're at your most creative, you're at your most moral, problem-solving, lack of prejudice is all a self-actualized person. That's a person of completeness. But I'm going to save self-actualization uh, when I talk about Carl Rogers. But what Maslow's going to argue is that in order to become a complete person, a self-actualized person, you have to have four basic needs met, okay? And at the bottom, you have to have your physiological needs met. You have to have uh, breathing, food, water, shelter, sex, all of those things, those basic physiological things met. And then after you have your basic physiological needs met, you have to feel safe. You have to, for example, have feel like you're living in a, a good community, that, that, that in your relationship, there's no domestic violence or, or things like that. Once you have your physiological and your safety needs met, then you have to have your relationship needs met friendships, family, sexual intimacy, uh, spouses, intimate partners. And once those needs are met, then you have to have what's called esteem needs met. You have to feel good about yourself. You have to have confidence. You have to have achievement. Uh, it's, it's that esteem. So it starts with basic physiological safety needs, and then it starts with relationships, and then it goes into how you feel about yourself. If all of these four areas are met, then we can become what what, what Maslow said, a self-actualized person. We can become complete. We can become complete human beings, okay? Um, now, the issue is now Maslow felt that anybody could achieve this, but research since then has shown that very few people actually meet self-actualization. And the reason being is if you think about these needs, they all have to be met at the same time. So you could, you know, you could get a job, uh, you could get a home, uh, but what if your house is broken into? Okay, then your safety needs are not being taken care of. So you go back and you, and, and you feel, fulfill your physical needs, and then you get into a safer neighborhood or you get security for your house. But then let's say in your intimate relationship, um, you get divorced. That's going to bring you back down. Um, and then let's go um, at your self-esteem needs. Maybe you not only get fired, so there's your physiological and safety needs are met, but now you're feeling bad about yourself. You're feeling less than. So the issue that we have with, uh, according to Maslow, is that we have to have all these needs met in order to become self-actualized, become complete people. And that's why, you know, I would argue, uh, you know, you all are amazing students. I, I've come to respect each one of you. And I feel like, you know, you all have this potential towards self-actualization. But some of you may have relationship issues. Some of you may have esteem issues. 
Some of you, I, I, you know, I, if you live on campus, um, there's been safety issues throughout the semester with stray bullets and those kinds of things, physiological needs. And so my hope is, is that you all get all of these things fulfilled so that through your education, you can come to this self-actualized moment, okay? Uh, but I understand that that's difficult. And, and I respect each one of you for, for, for making this commitment towards your education to meet these esteem needs and these safety needs and these physiological needs, okay? I just wanted to put that out there, okay? So, um, and, and for those who are going into the helping fields, whether it be medical or mental health or something, these are the things that we assess. This is our basic assessment. When you go to a counselor, they're going to see, are you getting food, water, all of those things, are they being taken care of? Do you live in a safe environment? What's your home life like? What's your social life like? Do you have social support systems in your life? Do you have family that you're close to? Those kinds of things. And the last thing that we'll assess is your own value. Depression, anxiety, we're going to screen for all of those things. And these are all the things that we look for when people go in for counseling or therapy. These are the areas that we're going to look at. Um, the healthiest organization. So my students in here that are going into business, okay, Human resource people love this model because we know the healthiest organizations that are out there uh, pay a good wage so that people can take care of their food, water, and their basic physiological needs. They make sure the workplace is safe so they, they have proper securities in place. They make sure there's areas for employees to um, uh, talk together to collaborate on things so that friendship and, and, and social belonging is taken care of. And they make sure that there's room for growth in the esteem needs. And so they make sure that there's professional development available. They make sure that there's places for growth, individual growth. So in the area of business, if you're looking at business, these areas are the areas that you grow a healthy company from, okay? So the application of Maslow's model is, is kind of universal. We see it in the field of business. We see it in the field of therapy and counseling and social work. We see it all over the place because we've realized that we have to have all of these needs meet, met in order to grow and develop and, 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 and the like, okay? Now, I told you that I, the definition of self-actualization, I prefer Carl Rogers' version of this uh, because he has these two, two things and, and this slide doesn't do it justice. Um, he has this idea of the real self versus the imagined self, okay? And I want you to put this in this, this terms. Your imagined self is the person you think you ought to be. So you should be the, the, the best athlete. You should be the A-plus student. You should be the greatest mom or dad in the world. You should be the, 
a superstar by now. You should be TikTok famous, okay? And and you should be that. That's that's the imagined self. And the real self is this person who you are. This is who you are existing as. This is you on a day-to-day basis, okay? And what Carl Rogers is going to argue is that a self-actualized person is someone where their real self and their imagined self are one in the same, okay? This doesn't mean you become the TikTok famous person, okay? This doesn't mean you become the greatest parent in the world. This No, what I'm meaning in this is that you come to a point of complete acceptance. You accept all of your good qualities, all the things you have going for you. But at the same time, you accept all of your bad qualities. You don't deny them. So, uh, you know, excuse my language, but, uh, you know, when, when someone comes up to you and says, you know, you can be a real ass sometimes. A self-actualized person is someone saying, yeah, I know that. I'm working on it. They, they don't deny it. They don't say, oh, you're, you're not right. I'm never that person. They go, oh, I do understand that about myself. And that's something I accept of myself and I'm working on. Okay. Now, I want you to think about this type of person that accepts both their positive qualities, their negative qualities, and everything in between. If you are able to accept yourself completely and totally, then that allows you to accept other people for who they are completely and totally, okay? So if you think about the truly self-actualized person, this is a person who could work with a uh, convicted pedophile. This is someone who can work with a rapist. This is someone um, who right now in the United States is very diverse, is is kind of a sensitive subject, right? So, so, So this is a person might be Democrat, but they still accept Republican ideas and work with them and and, and accept them for who they are. Okay, that's just an example. It is the Christian who is able to appreciate the beliefs of a Muslim or of a Buddhist or someone like that, because they understand that that's what their need is, okay? A self-actualized person is someone who has such complete acceptance for themselves that they also can accept other people for both their positive and negative qualities. I bring up the idea of pedophiles and sexual assault people who have sexually assaulted other people, because those are egregious offenses, egregious offenses towards children and towards other human beings. 
But a self-actualized person is someone who says, yes, those are egregious acts. Those are negative things about those people. But that's not who that person completely is. That's not their complete determination. A self-actualized person says, yes, they need to be where they are, whether it be prison or jail or in the, in the, in the criminal justice system because of the actions they've created. But I can still work with them. I can still try and see beyond just that one negative thing that that person is doing in their life. And I can appreciate the other parts of them. Okay, that is, and, and you know, I, I know in, in this class, um, GCU, we're, we're, we're all about Christian values. We're all about those things. And I haven't mentioned it much in this class, but I'm going to give you my own profession on this. You know, um, my relationship with Jesus Christ isn't that he's my savior, isn't that he's my God and all those things, but he is my mentor. He is the person that I want to live like because he didn't live his life with the rich, the wealthy, the, 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 the congressmen's, the senators. The, he lived his life with people who needed him. He lived his life with what Rogers would consider those who are in need of help to see beyond their um, deficits. One of the closest people to Jesus Christ was a prostitute, but he did not see her as a prostitute. He saw her as a human being that had value, that had meaning, that was beyond her, what she was doing to survive in this life. Jesus is maybe my best example of a self-actualized person. He doesn't belong to me. He appreciates me for my qualities and my deficits. And I know he'll be there when I need him as a mentor and as a guide for how I should live as a human being. Okay, so I just wanted to bring that up because I know I haven't mentioned faith as much as, as GCU would like us to, but I think this humanistic theory and the self-actualized person is what we should be living towards. It's what we should be going for. And so in the end of that profession, I'll get off my soapbox and, and I just want to mention some of these things I've mentioned the 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 uh, notion between the 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 imagined self and the real self, and I'm going to tell you one of the 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 things that Matt that Rogers did bring out and research since him is that the further apart the further apart our imagined self is from our real self, the more dysfunction we see in the individual eating disorders, depression, anxiety, PTSD symptoms can be predicted by how much diversion there is between 
what a person thinks they should be and who they are as a human being. Okay, so when you think about the imagined self and the real self, I want you to keep that in mind. If you're having issues in your life, how congruent are you being with yourself? Are you being real with who you are? Because as I am just going to state this again, the greater the divergence between who we think we should be and who we are, the greater dysfunction we see within the individual. Okay. And I'm just going to bring this up, uh, certain conditions that we need in order to become an actualized person, according to Rogers. We need relationships that are genuine. And they have to have this thing we call unconditional positive regard. And, and, and in, in, this, in the motivation of, of motivational theory, one thing we should all seek in order to become the best versions of ourself is that person in our life who does not judge us, but is there for us. And we need to provide that for other people. We need to see people for their potential. In modern research, we have found, we, we've used the term called growth mindset. Okay. A growth mindset is when you look at yourself or you look at others, not for their deficits, but for their potential. The, the, the notion of growth mindset is that I don't focus that, you know, sometimes I procrastinate, sometimes I this. No, growth mindset is I can make a change. I can make a difference. I don't see people because that I'll give an example in education. When an instructor or a professor has a growth mindset for his or her students, it's not that you see, okay, they're first generational, maybe they're of a minority group, they're, maybe they're, 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 you know, they're, they have issues at home, they have all of these deficits that make the student not successful. Growth mindset is despite your students' issues, you know they're awesome in many ways. You see their potential, you see their growth. So I'm not going to focus on first generation. I'm not going to focus on uh, their home. I'm going to focus on what their strengths are because I see potential. In all of the research that has been, been done so far, when a professor, when they're educating their students, has a growth mindset, they ignore a student's deficits and they only focus on their student's potential, those classes become high-performing classes. So students become high-performing students. And so this is just an example coming out of the education literature but it applies to almost every area. In the field of early childhood education, as an example, that we just went through with human development, 
when parents and educators don't focus on the negative behaviors of the child, but instead focus on the interests, the things that make that child excited, the things that get that child going, and, and they don't focus on the bad behaviors, those children become successful. They become successful in language, in cognition, in school performance, in social relationships. But we get into this culture where the things that we focus on is the things that people do bad, the things that annoy us. And in that mindset, we create a culture of submission. We create a culture of low performance. We create a culture that isn't at their best. Okay. All right. So thank you, Grant. Take care. Please let me know how it goes. Um, so I'm going to stop there for today. Uh, and, and I just wanted to bring up this motivational theory and the ideas behind it. Uh, so that we did, we finished off the last two weeks with both the behaviorism and now we have the, 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 the humanistic approach to it, which has lent to positive psychology, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, to, to, to the idea of a growth mindset and all of those types of things. So, um, but what I would like to do now, because uh, I, I was looking at our classroom and there's still uh, 